Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be back after several weeks pause with Historians Blaining, and today I want to present another edition in my series on the history of the United States in 100 Objects. So half of these lectures are on Patreon for patrons only, and half I post publicly. So this one is for the public. It's number nine on the Bartman beer jug. So this particular object, as I said, is a Bartman beer jug, which in German means bearded man. It is made of brown salt-glazed stoneware, most likely in Frecken, Germany, around the year 1605, and it was found at James Fort, the citadel at Jamestown, Virginia, where it was abandoned probably in about the 1610s. So this Bartman beer jug, the particular specimen I'm going to talk about, is not the only ceramic piece that has been found at the site of James Fort, and it is not the only Bartman beer jug, although it is very distinctive and special for a number of reasons that I'll point out. But as for the site, it was discovered in Pit 1 at the foundations of James Fort, which was a small, mostly wooden, palisaded citadel built in a triangular shape with bastions for cannons at each of the three corners. And inside the fort were storehouses, rows of huts and small dwellings, workshops such as a blacksmith shop and a bakery, and an Anglican church, which was a fairly impressive building for this small colonial outpost about 60 feet long, built in 1608. However, as you may know, Jamestown had conflicts and struggles with the local Indian Confederacy, the Powhatan, almost from its very beginning. There were struggles over control of land and food, and the Jamestown colonists were cut off from hunting and foraging around the surrounding Powhatan territory. And hence, the entire colony, both the small village and the fort, were abandoned due to starvation in June 1610. But as the colonists sailed downriver on their way to leave and cross the ocean, hopefully to return to England, they were intercepted by a fleet coming the other way, led by Lord de la War, with extensive food and drink and other supplies to restock the colony. So the colonists under de la War's leadership returned to the site and built up more permanent structures, including larger houses and wells, both inside and outside the fort. However, not long after, the fort became outmoded and was eventually abandoned. The entire town of Jamestown was damaged by Bacon's Rebellion decades later, and the site was eventually abandoned, and even the location of the original Jamestown and James Fort was lost for several centuries until archaeologists finally were able to locate it and begin excavating the foundations in the 1990s, really just in time to create a reconstruction of the fort in time for its 400th anniversary. 
So in the site of James Fort, archaeologists found many coins, weapons, firearms, armor, and many ceramic vessels, right? Ceramics are among the most durable materials in the world. The last object that I spoke about in this series was a ceramic communion chalice created in New Mexico. And many societies in the past were only able to trace and identify because of the types of pottery and ceramics that they made. So it's not surprising that that was prominent in the objects that archaeologists found around James Fort. And as for this particular Bartman jug and other similar ones, it is possible that they were actually brought over by Lord de la War in that fleet that resupplied Jamestown in 1610. And jugs like this were made in large numbers in Germany, mainly in order to carry export wine and beer. So it's likely that this particular Bartman jug was filled with wine or beer originally, and once that was used up, it could have been reused multiple times. And perhaps it was until eventually it was discarded as the fort was abandoned. Bartman, as I said, means bearded man. So if you look at one of these jugs, it's large, round, and bulbous, roughly like a, a large person's body. And then on the base of the neck, you see a sculpted face of of a bearded, often smiling or grinning man. They were made in Germany, particularly in Frecken, which was a point of export for huge amounts of German wine and beer abroad, including to Britain. So the existence of several of these Bartmann jugs at James Fort reflects the dependence of the colonists primarily on beer, not water. So it was normal in medieval Europe for people to live mainly off of beer that they brewed, that hence was sterile, but still watery enough to hydrate, rather than water from wells or streams which were dirty. And more broadly, the existence of these vessels like the Bartman jugs shows the dependence of this early tiny colony on imported food and resources, right? The Jamestown colonists were unable to figure out how to survive off of their environment on their own, and their attitude towards the indigenous people created conflict and backlash, so they weren't able to establish a cooperative symbiotic relationship within the Powhatan Confederacy, as might have seemed possible maybe initially in the first encounters. So these, these supplies that the colony had frequently ran out. They attempted to requisition food, including maize, from the Powhatans by force, but this did not work. They were overwhelmed. And so the colony went through several periods of starvation and privation, especially in its first few years. And this is probably when this jug was brought into the colony. So in all of these ways, you could say that this Bartman jug uh, encapsulates a lot of the dilemma and the precariousness of this early colony. But the particular one I'm going to talk about also is rare and unusual. So Bartman jugs sometimes have heraldic shields and crests carved into them which might represent a town or city where the jug was produced. It might 
represent the shield of a merchant or other patron who paid for the wine or beer. Uh, All of this is not so unusual. But this particular jug has a striking and unique crest of arms on it. So this particular crest has four quadrants, which is normal, and in all of these quadrants there are different arrangements of lions passant, sort of figures of lions seen from the side with one paw raised, which also is a common symbol and motif in many coats of arms all around Europe. However, the upper left quadrant has a so-called fess with a label on chief, which means that if you look at this upper left quadrant, there is a band running across the top with three unusual fleur-de-lis emblems running across it. And this particular feature, this fess with a label on chief, was understood for centuries as a marker of the Guelphs. And the Guelphs were a political party centered mainly in Italy that sided with the Pope in the political struggles between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in the Middle Ages. So the Guelphs tended to favor Italian local self-governance as opposed to the Ghibellines, who supported the authority of the Emperor, and they tended to be more ostentatious in their Catholic piety and devotion to the Church. Now, this jug, as we said, was clearly produced in Germany, most likely in Frecken, which is a town west of Cologne, so on the western edge of the Rhineland, near the border with France. And it was close to the sort of boundary line between Protestant and Catholic Germany by the time this jug was made in the late 15 or early 1600s, but which was mostly, predominantly, Roman Catholic, and still today is more Catholic. So it's very strange, considering that it came from this part of Germany, why should it have this Guelph emblem on it? And it's possible, for one thing, that the jug was commissioned by an Italian merchant uh, to sell beer or wine abroad, And this Italian merchant had a Guelph background, and then somehow, one way or another, this jug made its way into the export trade to England, from which it was then carried over to the colonies. Now, the question, even if this is true, the question remains, was this incident of this jug ending up in the supply of an English fleet to the colony of Virginia, simply a random accident, or was it somehow meaningful or intentional? Did it make its way into this channel because those symbols, the loyalties that they represented or the people that they represented were somehow specially meaningful for the person or the group that brought the jug over to Virginia? And If we consider that Virginia was funded and founded mainly by high church Anglicans uh, who tended to be more sympathetic to Catholicism and who sometimes, as we'll see later, expressed some admiration or affinity for the Catholic powers, uh, it raises the question of whether this jug and its coat of arms were a kind of subtle or slightly veiled expression 
of pro-Catholic leanings, which we know existed in England at this time and sometimes made their way into art or literature in very sort of subtle and coded ways. And this question is even more important when we consider that the jug is not the only object that was found in Jamestown around James Fort that suggests some kind of Guelph sympathy. Uh, So it is not unique, but in fact, there is a slate plaque that was found discarded in a cellar in James Fort that had many drawings all over it in chalk and other media, uh, including figures of people, figures of birds and animals, numbers, a date, 1598, which maybe is the date when this particular amateur artist obtained this slate. Uh, We don't know. But also among them is a band with a set of three fleur-de-lis, just like the one you see on this Bartman jug, which suggests that to somebody, that little fess, as it's called, had some kind of significance and meant something for their journey to the new world. So at this time, Catholicism in England was technically illegal, as I mentioned in my last lecture. Uh, Catholic clergy were not allowed in England, nor were public Catholic worship services, although sometimes Catholic clergy, like Jesuits, did travel around and minister at private or secret chapels in homes, manor houses. And Catholic loyalties or leanings were sometimes private and encoded, expressed in sort of subtle symbolic languages. So all of this was going on by 1603 when King James came to the English throne. And James retained the laws against Catholicism to the frustration of many Catholics, but he also reoriented England's foreign policy, and he very quickly moved to make peace with Spain, the big Catholic enemy that had threatened Queen Elizabeth and tried to invade with the Spanish Armada. So James moved to make peace with Spain and led some of his subjects to believe that a sort of rapprochement was coming and that these restrictions on Catholicism would loosen and that maybe even some high church Anglicans who supported the ceremonialism of the Anglican church, the Book of Common Prayer, that some of them would even be free to move the church back in a more Catholic direction. And there are some hints and suggestions that these sort of hopes inspired by the peace between England and Spain may have influenced some of the powerful leaders of the Virginia colony. For instance, the first president of the governor's council in colonial Virginia, named Edward Maria Wingfield, was openly accused of spying for Spain. And when questioned about his relationship to the Spanish state, he said, quote, I confess I have always admired any noble virtue and prowess as well in the Spaniards as among anyone else, but naturally I have always distrusted and disliked their neighborhood. 
So this sort of statement of ambivalence suggests that even if people understood that Spain was a threat and that English colonies in America were created partly to counter the power of Spain, nonetheless there were qualities in the Spanish state that they could admire and that maybe they wanted England and the English Empire to look more like Spain. Uh, and in fact, there are indications that Spain and their empire in America served to some degree as a model for Virginia, that Virginia was imagined as kind of a little echo or imitation of the Spanish conquests in America, especially the conquests of the great civilizations of Mexico and Peru. And one of the indications that Virginia was possibly following the model of Mexico, especially, was that the colonists and their backers sought out the most powerful indigenous state that they could find. They didn't go to what they hoped would be a sort of empty no man's land, but rather they aimed for a major populated area and they ended up colonizing right in the middle of the Powhatan Confederacy, which was the greatest power in that region. And from there, it seems, they tried to treat the Powhatan Confederacy in much the way that Cortes and the Spanish conquistadores had treated the Mexican Empire. They tried to uh, intimidate and take control over their leaders. They tried to demand uh, tribute of food and labor, especially food, and they tried to use the indigenous people and their knowledge and resources to extract gold, right? Uh, the, the English, much like Cortes and the other Spanish conquistadores, knew that gold was the only resource that was valuable enough in proportion to its size and weight, that it would be worth it to send voyages across the ocean to obtain it and send it back to Europe. So although they, their hopes were excessive, uh, they were correct that the main goal of the colony in its first few years should be to try to locate gold. Now, all of these projects ended up failing, right? They did not make a spectacular conquest. They did not obtain enormous wealth, gold and silver to ship back to Europe. They could not send back reports of fabulous civilizations submitting to their rule the way Cortes could do. All of this failed, right? Powhatan effectively resisted their, their attempts to intimidate and manipulate him. They eventually opened up workable diplomatic relations, which were then sealed by the marriage of the Princess Pocahontas to John Rolfe. But nonetheless, it, the colony continued to struggle and was an economic failure, failing to find any gold. But they happened to be saved, again, largely due to John Rolfe, because they discovered that certain lucrative strains of tobacco could be grown in the Chesapeake region's climate. So the sort of scheme of the Virginia Company, of their high church Anglican backers and supporters, and of these early colonists was misguided, or at least it, you could say it was a completely failed gamble, right? They put their money 
on this idea of taking over the Powhatan domains and getting gold out of them. And none of it worked. And they only ended up being sort of saved by tobacco, which buoyed the economy of Virginia from then onward. And this Bartman jug, which at some point in the 1600s, probably pretty early on, was abandoned in James Fort, it, you could say, encapsulates this sort of moment before tobacco, when the idea of Virginia was not to create an agrarian colony that would attract settlers and make money by growing a lucrative crop, but instead was understood as a kind of conquest venture that would be fed and supplied directly from Europe and would then use military power to try to dominate the people in that region. And when this whole experiment failed, you could say this forced the English to transition into a totally different model of colonization, which was about pushing indigenous people out of territories that they claimed and depopulating them to then repopulate them with settlers who would engage in cash crop agriculture, right? And that's really where the colonial Virginia that more of us know uh, comes from. And the jug also, again, it suggests in this very mysterious and ambiguous way that there was a kind of radically different notion of England and of the potential shape and character of its empire that was a kind of small model, a kind of small emulation of Spain or France, which ultimately did not come to fruition. In some ways, you could say it kind of had small second lives later on with uh, the Dominion of New England and Edmund Andros, and maybe we'll talk about those things later. But that ultimately was swept away by a different English and then British kind of imperialism, an imperialism based on mass movement of people and overwhelming numbers to control and exploit the land. So thank you so much for listening. I've been talking for some time now about England in the 15 and 1600s. And so hopefully that sets the stage, so to speak, for the next topic that I want to examine, which is the historical Shakespeare. What do we know about Shakespeare? What do we know about this, in many ways, very enigmatic and elusive person who wrote the, the greatest body of plays and a great corpus of poems in England at this time, in the late 15 and early 1600s. So ordinarily, I would do one normal lecture in my sort of ongoing series, and then I would do a myth of the month. But because there's so much to say about Shakespeare and who he was and who he was not and what we know about him and what we don't, I think I'll do one open lecture about the documentary record about Shakespeare and the, what we can discern from the sonnets. And then I'll do a closed one for patrons only addressing the authorship question, right? And this kind of lay controversy about whether Shakespeare didn't really write Shakespeare. So thank you again so much for listening. If you want to hear all my patron-only material, uh, please go to my Patreon page and sign up with any contribution. 
And please rate and review and tell friends and family. Thank you.